Welcome to another episode of Fear Not, the podcast that tells us why we're afraid of all the wrong things and oblivious to what can actually kill us. Trending fears this week. Fear the charter school battle coming to a political campaign near you. Florida man arrested for getting a gator drunk. That and so much more coming up on Fear Not. Today is gonna be a good day. Don't care what anybody else say. Oh, I don't need a budget cookie to tell me the way I'm feeling. Gonna be a good day. A good day. Welcome back to Fear Not. It's episode 27. I'm Barry Glasner. My funny half, Alonzo Bowden, is traveling for a few weeks. He's on the road performing. And our crack producer, Adam, is back again. Hey, Adam. Hey, Barry. Happy to be here. So welcome back. This is another mini episode to tide our listeners over till the holidays. So we're using this holiday period to revisit some of my fears of the week and to update you with the latest info. Barry, let me give you the latest info on Alonzo's schedule. The 6th through the 8th of December, he's going to be at the Comedy Store in La Jolla. He's going to be in Hermosa Beach, California at the Comedy and Magic Club from December 10th through the 12th. Comedy and Magic, Barry, that's your thing right there. It is, it is. And check him out on NPR's news quiz, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And of course, you can just follow Alonzo on Twitter, at Alonzo Bowden. He's got everything there. He's got links to his website. He's got links to his tour information. Follow him. And Adam, I've got another one, too, for Alonzo, which I think is really, really cool. He's going to be doing the first ever show for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the stand-up tour. Mark your calendar. It's going to be February 28th, 2020. And he's going to be joining his Wait, Wait panelists at the Paramount Theater in Austin, Texas. And make sure to follow Barry on social media at Barry Glasner. And please keep sharing the podcast with your friends. It'll help make them safe and happy during the holiday season. We're on Twitter at Fear Not Official. You can also email us fearnotofficial at gmail.com. And while you're there, subscribe to our podcast. You'll get alerted every time we post a new episode. Let's get this thing started. We originally reported on charter schools in episode six back in July. It was my fear of the week. And Alonzo and I actually had some disagreement about this one. So I'm really sorry that he can't be here today to take the other side, but we'll try to present both sides, okay? Here's part of our original reporting from July. This is a subject, Alonzo, that's been on my radar for a long time. And you know what it is? It's the move to charter schools. About two thirds of students in charter schools are students of color which obviously is a reason why black and Hispanic voters say that they support charter schools. Well, I support the idea of charter schools. There are a lot of terrible public schools. If you have charter schools, if you have a school run by a private organization that can do it better, and you give that organization the money, and that school is open to all the kids, then that's a great thing. Also, when it comes to specialized education, I think charter schools are a good idea as long as they work. Now, why don't you like them? When that's the case, they're good things. But here's why we're talking about this. Back in 1994, the Charter School Fund was added to the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Since then, the feds, they've handed over about $4 billion to states for charter schools. And this study says that the Department of Education has spent $1 billion on charter school waste and fraud. And here are just a few of the takeaways from that report. Many charter schools receive funding and either never open or they close within a year or two. In California alone, which is the largest state with the most charter schools, between 2004 
and 2014, 306 schools closed or never opened. And the total cost of that was $180 million. I don't blame charter schools for that. I blame administrators. I blame the crooks in the government. You know, this, this sounds like a lot of backdoor deals made where somebody knows somebody and they say, hey, I'm going to open a charter school. I need money. And then his his friend's department gives him the money. You know, and it's not really an overstatement to say that the system is set up to encourage this, to encourage fraud. Here's an example. Not-for-profit charter schools are allowed to pay rent on buildings that are owned by the very individuals who run and control the schools with little or no oversight on how the rent rates are determined. Charter school organizers are also allowed to hire their own friends and family to work at the schools. What could go wrong? (laughs) And here's something I think should concern every one of our listeners, even those who solidly support the idea of charter schools. There's evidence that as more taxpayer money has gone to charter schools, there's been a decrease in the quality of the schools as measured by state testing. And what's even worse than all of that, many of the issues that this report's raised have been flagged in the past. They've been flagged by the DOE's own Office of the Inspector General. The amount of fraud and waste that this study found is ridiculous. It turns out we were ahead of the curve on this story, Adam. The report that we cited that exposed that fraud in charter schools, well, that's created a political football on the issue in the presidential election. That's partly because of all that waste that we just heard about, but it's also because of the limited educational improvements that charter schools seem to provide and the negative effect that they're having on public schools. Now, this is after two decades of support for charter schools from both political parties. Bill Clinton, both Presidents Bush and Barack Obama, they all backed the charter school movement. And of course, so does Trump. Republican governors and Democratic mayors joined forces to give charters a foothold in key cities, including Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, and New Orleans. They essentially agreed that market-driven reforms, competition, and choice were key to transforming an education system that in too many places is failing children of color. Chicago had almost 100, and New Orleans pretty much turned over its school district to charter operators in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. That was back in 2005. And then Obama picked Arne Duncan, Arnie Duncan had run the Chicago public schools. He selected him to head the U.S. Department of Education, and this was an appointment that signaled pretty clearly that the new president was on board with the charter school movement. The growth of charter schools under Bush and Obama was exponential. More than 3 million children, about 6% of all public school children, now attend a charter school. That's a large number. In Washington, D.C., for example, almost half of the public school students are in charters. One-third of children in Newark, New Jersey, attend a charter. That's up from 10% a decade ago. In New York City, one in 10 students. That comes out to roughly 90,000 children are charter school pupils four times as many as 10 years ago. The current Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, is a staunch supporter of the pro-charter school movement. She continues to sell charter schools as the answer for public education across the board. Her position is the more we privatize education, the more accountability parents have in their kids' education. Within the Democratic Party, charter schools have become a hot potato. So much so, in fact, that when Michael Bloomberg started talking about entering the race back in November, 
The New York Times immediately reported that, and this is a quote, his championing of charter schools has the potential to alienate pillars of the Democratic Party's political base. End of quote. And on the other end of the political spectrum within the Democratic Party, you have some candidates, specifically Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, as you might expect, they've publicly called for freezing spending on charter schools and possibly cutting all funding for charter schools. Here's what Warren said on the campaign trail back in May. And that what Bessie DeVos has done to our public education uh, really undermines uh, the best opportunities for our kids. I think our public tax dollars should stay in our public schools. Yeah. In case you couldn't make out the end of that clip, the reporter asks, so no to for-profit charter schools? And Warren answers, yeah. And just to be clear, there are nonprofit charter schools. She's specifically talking about for-profit schools here. Then in late October, Elizabeth Warren released her plan for K-12 through education, and it calls for all of this, a freeze on federal funds for new charters, an end to federal investment in charter school expansion, banning for-profit charter schools, ensuring existing charter schools are subject to the same transparency and accountability requirements as traditional public school districts. And then she's also calling for ensuring that only school districts can authorize the opening of new charter schools. Not surprisingly, Warren's announcement set off alarm bells in the charter school world, especially from charter organizations that receive hundreds of millions of dollars a year from the government. In a fundraising email for the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, there was this. Dear friends, today presidential candidate and Senator Elizabeth Warren called to end federal funding for the expansion of charter schools. Senator Warren's plan to starve charter schools of funding would destroy the dreams of a quality education for the families who need it most. Please contribute to the Charter Schools Action Pack today. Meanwhile, for her part, Betsy DeVos is accelerating school privatization and the flow of public funds into private charter school hands. Since DeVos has been in charge, six of the 20 grants from a program called the State Entities Program, which totals $115 million, has gone into private agencies for charter schools, not to state government agencies. These private agencies get to keep 10% of the grants for administering them. That's a lot of money that's not directly educating students. The federal charter school program is moving in a direction aligned with the philosophy of Trump and DeVos. Not surprising, they're in power. And we all know, of course, that that's a great thing because President Trump has an amazing record running for-profit schools like Trump University, <laughs> right, Adam? <laughs> yeah, but isn't this just politics as usual, Barry? Like conservatives like to privatize, liberals like the public options. To some extent, yes. But there was a pivotal moment, Adam. That was when the teachers' strikes around the country occurred in early 2018, and especially those in West Virginia and in California, because those focused specifically on charter schools. It was a focus of the strikes straight out. West Virginia teachers walked out over privatization of schools in the form of vouchers and charters, and here in California both in L.A. and in Oakland, California, there were calls to stop the spread of charters. Those became a specific part of the negotiations. 
Listen to what Ingrid Vallejo said. She was one of the leaders of the teachers union in L.A. during that strike. Educators are rising up and saying, you know, we want to preserve public schools. We care about public schools. So we're part of this movement that is um, speaking out for public schools and willing to put our bodies on the line. Our superintendent is a Wall Street banker. He has had no educational experience, and he's coming up with a business model that has been done in other cities, such as New Orleans, such as New Jersey, uh, Chicago, and so forth. So we see through what he wants to do. This is like a broke on purpose. You know, there's no money. We believe that what happens in L.A., and, and everybody says this as well, affects the nation. We're the ones that can set the national referendum on public schools in, in the country. So as you can hear, she put public schools first, even ahead of salary issues. Saving public schools was that important to the union. L.A. Unified is the second largest school district in the U.S., and L.A.-based billionaire philanthropist Eli Broad has wielded a lot of influence over L.A. politics and the schools for a long time. He's a huge supporter of the charter school movement. After the 2017 campaign, which was the most expensive school board election in the nation's history, he helped secure a four to three pro-charter majority on the board. And with his support, the board picked as its new school superintendent a guy named Austin Butner. He's an investment banker with no experience running a school district or even a school, but he has close connections to Eli Broad. Butner is a charter school supporter very strongly. He served on the boards of several private charter school companies, and partly it was Butner's plan to reshape the public school system that galvanized the anti-charter forces. The thing Butner didn't see was the overwhelming support of traditional public schools in Los Angeles. Competition produces winners and losers in public education. Our obligation is to all children. Do students in charter schools get better grades and test scores than kids in public schools? Good question. In fact, it's not all that clear that they do. For example, William Sampson's book in 2016, titled Chicago Charter Schools, The Hype and the Reality, looked at math and reading scores across the city and reported that traditional public schools outperformed charter schools in math, science, and composite testing. That's a test of overall knowledge. Sampson has a Ph.D. from Johns Hopkins University, and he's an education policy professor at DePaul University in Chicago. He's well aware of why charter schools have had bipartisan support for 20 years. I think this is a perfect summary. This is a quote from him. Competition satisfies conservatives. Extra money satisfies liberals. But Sampson also found in his research that charter schools had a lower percentage of special education students and an abundance of students who moved less often and had fewer absences. In other words, charter schools skim off students who stand a good chance of succeeding in any school environment, public, charter, or private. Sampson's research backs up what critics have been saying about charter schools for years, and that is charters push out students who don't meet performance standards, something that, in fact, we know happened at one of the most celebrated charter school programs in the nation, the Harlem Children's Zone. Now, of course, private schools have been doing this all along. They're careful about who they take, to put it politely. But we're talking here about public schools, 
and schools that take public funds. And that's where the pushback comes. What about New Orleans, though? You know, I, I grew up in Texas and I saw firsthand the effects of Katrina. I had a bunch of, uh, when I was in high school, I had a bunch of friends come from New Orleans directly affected by that. But in my research, I saw articles where uh, it was a success story with these charter schools coming in and replacing public schools. True enough, researchers have documented that test scores, high school graduation rates, even college outcomes, all of those improved for students who attended school in New Orleans post-Katrina. But when proponents of charter schools say that, they leave out a few key facts, like the fact that those New Orleans schools received a lot more money, $1,400 a year per student. And even the researcher who conducted the study that charter school enthusiasts love to cite, even he said, and this is a quote, the effects would almost certainly be smaller, but it's hard to tell by how much without the extra funding. Other things changed in New Orleans during the post-Katrina period also. Things that research has shown have a positive effect on student performance and can help explain those outcomes. Most notably, the poverty rate dropped massively. I can't tell you exactly why that would be a whole research project, but it did. New Orleans ranked second among big U.S. cities in concentrated poverty prior to the store. But by 2009, it ranked 40th, 38 places better. Still, there are plenty of examples of success at charter schools. Sure, they're anecdotal, but there is some research behind this, and they shouldn't be ignored. For example, there's a recent study from the Stanford Center for Research on Education Outcomes that shows that charter schools, especially the large charter school networks like KIPP, Success, and Yes Prep, all reported small but nonetheless significant gains in reading and math when they were compared to their traditional school peers. That same study, which examines slices of the charter school industry all across the country, shows that larger charter schools improved the outcomes for black students, especially when compared to those in neighboring traditional public schools, which goes back to the point that Alonzo was making in our earlier episode. But it's important to note that those students still trail white students in traditional public schools in reading and math. And listen, I'm the first to say that you can definitely find plenty of charter schools that do a good job, some that do an amazing job. You can even find some that focus on learning disabled and other special needs kids. And there's a sort of general larger point here, Adam. Charters may have a direct benefit only on a relatively few children, only to the ones who gain access to them. And especially if you're talking about low-income children, it's a small percentage. But the hope has always been from the advocates that this will force the rest of the system to adopt changes. I feel like Alonzo's here with me, Barry. You've successfully argued both sides of this issue, but to me, it doesn't seem like it pertains to me at all. Is this something that I should actually care about? What What is the bottom line? Yeah, you should care about it. Everybody should. The question is, let me put it very simply. Should our tax dollars continue to fund what are, in essence, private schools? Well, tax dollars, now you are talking about something that affects me. Yeah, exactly. And we have to answer that question in light of some facts. All right, here's some key ones. They've wasted over a billion dollars of taxpayer money that could be used to make our public schools better. Second, charter schools are skimming the higher-performing students out of the public schools in many cases. That leaves inner-city schools with kids who need more resources to succeed and whose scores are lower, so of course they look good. And what in some ways I think should matter most, 
all that money and effort that's gone to charter schools has produced marginal improvements in testing scores, which likely could have been achieved in public schools if they were given the same investment. And so the bottom line, don't fear every charter school, but fear the charter school movement. Down in Florida, we welcome you to the Sunshine State. It's time for Fear Florida. Adam, let us have it. Here's the headline. Florida man arrested for trying to get alligator drunk. Okay, I can't (laughs) really imagine where you're going to go with this. I can kind of imagine how you'd get an alligator high. I mean, (laughs) you could do that, but I'm really having a hard time picturing how do you get an alligator drunk? If you want to try it, you get a Florida man to do it. (laughs) Definitely. That's the way to do it No question about that. All right, so this is from the New York Post. It's a short one, but there's a lot of great details in here, Barry. A Florida man was reportedly arrested for trying to get an alligator drunk after his pal captured the reptile. According to a Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission report, a Hobie Sound, Florida resident, Timothy Kepke, is 27 years old, allegedly fed some beer to an alligator. Barry, I feel like we should be cracking open some beers for this story right here. (laughs) (laughs) So the video comes out. And Timothy is holding this about a foot long alligator with his hands around the alligator's throat. And in the first half of the video, he holds the alligator up to his bare arm and lets the alligator bite him right on the arm. Brilliant. And this is what he says to whoever's recording the video. That's a Florida man right there. That's a fucking idiot. I think I agree with a girlfriend. Oh, for sure. I love that, too, that the the moniker of Florida man is just like he's (laughs) literally doing it to be a Florida man. He's owning it. And now the beer comes in, Barry. Once you get bit by the alligator, you got to give the alligator a reward, right? (laughs) So he cracks open his Coors Light and he starts pouring it into the alligator's mouth. And then he says this. Oh, he needed that. After biting a human, I'm not sure that this little alligator actually needs a beer. Right. But what I don't get is if it's going to be a beer, why is it a light beer? Maybe some of the imported stuff that millennials love, like Alonzo loves to trash us about. (laughs) (laughs) So, Barry, they claim that they released the alligator back into the wild. Authorities obtained the video, and though it's unclear how they got rid of the gator, the police confronted Kepke at his home where he copped to the crime. Kepke told police he had consumed a few beers that day, but claimed he wasn't intoxicated during the incident. And his girlfriend, who you heard in that video, confirmed Kepke's account with the police, which evidently is illegal because both were arrested and charged with unlawfully taking an alligator. What I learned from this is it's not good enough to bring your light beer for your alligator. You can't take your alligator on a date in Florida. (laughs) You just can't take an alligator. That's not all right. You can't, Barry. You've got to woo it. You've got to you got to <laughs> present yourself well, get in your best Florida man outfit and go down there, bring some flowers to the gator and schmooze the alligator. Fear, Fear Florida. Florida. Today is going to be a good day. That's it for this mini episode of Fear Not. If you like what you heard, hit the subscribe button. And give us a five-star review to help us rise on the charts. And if you want to see Alonzo live, check out his tour schedule on his website at alonzoboden.com. Follow him on Twitter at Alonzo Bowden. 
And check him out many weeks on NPR's news quiz, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And make sure to follow Barry on social media, at Barry Glasner. And if you want a great read, an amazing book, check out Barry's book, The Culture of Fear, available at Amazon and bookstores everywhere. As always, if you hear news stories that make your hair stand on end or they sound like someone's trying to fill you with fear, please send them to us at fearnotofficial.com or tweet us at fearnotofficial and we'll see if we can find the truth. Goodbye. Fear Not is a Stone and Company Entertainment production, hosted by Alonzo Bowden and Dr. Barry Glasner, executive produced by Scott A. Stone, produced and edited by Adam Everest, written by Scott A. Stone, Barry Glasner, and Adam Everest. Alonzo writes stuff too. Don't believe him. Our sound engineer is Tim Moore. Legal Beagles, Loeb and Loeb. Crack accountants are 10 key accounting. Special thanks to Gary Brown, Betsy Amster, and Adam's imaginary girlfriend.